If you look at Luke 17, 1 to 10, it's likely that in your, uh, in your translation there, that's like two, it could even be more than two, very small sections of teaching. There are actually four of them there. Verses one and two, then verses three and four, then verses five and six, then seven through 10. We're gonna work our way through that and we're gonna put the whole passage under the umbrella of humility. Now, right from the outset, I just, I want to address openly and honestly that I don't stand up here and give a sermon on humility as one who is like a paragon of humble living. I'm not Moses who (laughs) scripture tells us that he wrote himself that he is the humblest man who ever lived. Um, I, just like any other person who is seeking to follow Jesus or any other person who's not seeking to follow Jesus. I battle daily with the idol of self, making me king in my own life, living according to my rule and my reign. That is a daily struggle for me. It's a daily struggle for anybody that wants to follow Jesus. And it is a daily reality in the lives of those who don't know him. And so we're gonna tackle this topic together. And it has been my prayer over the course of this week for myself and for us as a church family, both individually and collectively, that God would highlight the reality of my own pride, that God would shine the good news of the gospel into those places, that there would be freedom from that, that there would be healing from that, that there would be a deepening of a desire within me and within us to give our lives ever only and always to King Jesus and not to King Self. If you've ever seen the musical Wicked, uh, which is like a prequel to the Wizard of Oz, the musical begins actually where the Wizard of Oz ends, the Wicked Witch has died, the people of Oz are celebrating And Glinda, who is the good witch, she floats in in a bubble, which is how she travels in the Wizard of Oz as well. She she floats onto stage in a bubble and the people of Oz are like celebrating that the wicked witch is dead. They're celebrating that Glinda has arrived. And the first line of wicked is Glinda saying, it's good to see me, isn't it? And as they sort of like cheer and whatnot, she then says, you don't have to answer it's a rhetorical question. We might not be quite that like open about our self-centeredness, but all of us kind of live life as though we're the center of what's happening. We walk into a room and whether or not we ask people directly, we kind of think everybody's just so thankful for my presence here today. We see the situations that unfold in our lives and we kind of think that we are the central actor and the focus of those. We see the things that happen in the periphery of our lives and we think that we're a stronger character in those things than we actually are. Humility. It is a topic that we wrestle with from the moment we're born until the moment we go into glory. And humility is the foundation for following Jesus faithfully. That's where we're going to land this morning. We're gonna work our way through this passage and we'll sort of draw out some principles from each one of these sections. We'll tie them all together. And along the way, I I hope we're able to see why the umbrella of humility is where 
I've placed this this morning. If you've got Luke 17 open there, it's a short passage. We're going to work with 10 verses. So if you're able and comfortable and you want to stand while we read the word of God, I want to invite you to do that. This is what Luke chapter 17, starting in verse 1 says. He, that's Jesus, said to his disciples, offenses will certainly come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than for him to cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and comes back to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, the Lord said, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Which one of you, having a servant, tending sheep or plowing, will say to him when he comes in from the field, come at once and sit down to eat? Instead, will he not tell him, prepare something for me to eat, get ready and serve me while I eat and drink. Later, you can eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? In the same way, when you have done all that you were commanded, you should say, we are worthless servants. We have only done our duty. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Four parts. Verses one and two, a statement about holiness. Verses three and four, a statement about forgiveness. Verses five and six, a statement about faith. And then verses seven through 10, a parable with a statement about humility. There's a fair line of questioning that exists as to the context of this. We've worked our way through Luke 15 and 16, which is a series of five different parables. In the middle of 16, there's kind of like a chastisement that goes to the Pharisees. And then Luke 17 starts and says, he, that's Jesus, said to his disciples. So the question is fair. If Luke's ordering of his gospel, as we've said throughout this series, is predominantly theological, is this the exact way that like a conversation played out as it relates to these topics? Did Jesus give the parables in Luke 15, roll right into the parables in Luke 16, pausing to address the Pharisees in the middle and then turn to his disciples and say these statements about humility and forgiveness and holiness and faith? Scholars are divided on that particular question. Some believe that Luke, in his theological ordering of the gospel, collected teachings from the disciples and then inserted this at this place for theological reasons. Others take the perspective that this is the continuation of Jesus's interaction with the disciples, that he delivers those parables in the context of a mixed crowd, his disciples, a crowd of people curious about him, and some of the religious elite, the Pharisees, who are kind of scoffing at him. They have contempt for him and his teaching and they're looking to trap him. And that after doing all of the, the parables, he then looks directly to his disciples. I'm going to take that second approach and I'll tell you why. In other places, Luke will say, at another time, sometime later, he'll reset the context for us. He'll sort of draw our attention to a shift in setting. In fact, that's what happens in verse 11. Jesus gets done with this string of teaching and then we're told while traveling to Jerusalem. So Luke resets the stage, doesn't give us a time designation, tell us exactly where, but he lets us know that the context has shifted. 
I think this is all one section that runs together. And I'll explain that as we go. Let's work with each one of these and kind of draw out the principle. It's worth noting that if we're talking about holiness or forgiveness or faith or humility, we could give whole sermons. We could give whole sermon series to those topics. Jesus gives extended teachings on each one of those topics. That's not what's happening here. He's being very short on each one of these. And our purpose today is not to say everything there is to say about one of these topics. I'm gonna draw out a principle and then we're gonna take those principles and talk about them as a whole. So the first section here, he said to his disciples, offenses will certainly come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than for him to cause one of these little ones to stumble. What's the principle? The principle is that the way we live has the power to influence others and holiness is required. The first word that Jesus says in, this, in the CSB is translated offenses. The translation that you're looking at might translate that word differently. In fact, the way that it translates it might even influence the structure of the sentence. So your translation might say things that cause people to stumble. It might say stumbling blocks. It might say occasions for stumbling. It could say temptations to sin. The CSB renders this one word offenses. And that one word is the Greek word uh, skandala. That's obviously where we get the English word scandal. But scandals aren't what Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about a public figure who does something that's like morally bad or displays poor character and it causes a scandal. The word skandala in Greek is the same word that's used for like the bait stick of a trap. And so translators try to get that into the best language here. It's used a couple other places in the New Testament. Peter uses it in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 8, when he writes that Jesus is a stumbling, a stumbling block for the Jews or a rock to trip over, scandala. Paul uses it in Romans 11, verse 9, when he quotes one of David's psalms. So David's psalm would have been written in Hebrew. Paul takes that, puts it into Greek, and the way Paul translates that section of a psalm is that he says, their table has become a snare and a trap. Scandala. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying that the way that you live certainly influence others, influences others. And sometimes that influence will be towards sin. It will set a trap for people. Pause for a second we would all readily admit that the way that we live has influence over other people. And depending on the size or the scope of your realm of influence, your life could have larger or smaller degrees of influence on people. What Jesus is saying is that sometimes, even as a follower of Jesus, remember he's addressing his disciples, even as a follower of Jesus, the way that you live could set a trap for people to fall into sin. trying to come up with what might be like the most concrete way to help us visualize this. In our context today, I think one of the most common ways that this happens in the life of a believer is in the realm of gossip. You get together with a group of people. There's something in our flesh that likes to talk about the stuff that other people do or say or think. And so we go in and we're, at, we're talking about 
something at work with some of our coworkers. We're talking, it could be about something with our small group. It could be your group of friends over lunch or coffee. And you sit down and you say, hey, what do you think about fill in the blank? And you've set the trap. The bait stick has been loaded. And now the question is, will everybody in the group take the bait and all of you walk into gossip? Offenses will come. Your flesh, my flesh, our flesh, we kind of like having those kinds of conversations. And sometimes, even as followers of Jesus, we set the trap. And Jesus says, it would be better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck, heavy thing, and be thrown into the sea where you would drown than for you to live in such a way that you continuously, either passively or purposefully, lead people into that kind of sin. It would be better for you to just go and be with the Lord right now than to face the steep sort of judgment that comes with that kind of living. And that seems like an extreme statement. It's not the only time, though, that Jesus talks about holiness with that kind of intensity. Remember, this is the same Jesus who says, if your right hand causes you to sin, it would be better to cut that hand off and go into eternal life one-handed than to go into hell with two. If your eye causes you to sin, it would be better to gouge that thing out and go into heaven blind than to go into hell with two eyes. That's how serious Jesus is about holiness. Things like this are going to happen, Jesus says. We're broken. We're not gonna live perfectly in light of the gospel. Our flesh, the world, and the evil forces of Satan will prevent us from doing so. But there's steep judgment for just sort of joyously and high-handedly living in that kind of way. What kind of steep judgments, you might ask yourself? Well, just go back to the parable that Jesus gave. Where's the rich man? It would be better to have a millstone tied around your neck and to be drowned than to face what the rich man faces. Holiness is required of those who would faithfully follow Jesus. Verses three and four is the second topic. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and comes back to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So the way we live has the power to influence others and holiness is required. Then Jesus flips that over and he says, the way others live impacts you and forgiveness is required. Jesus moves on to them moves on from watch out for your sin to say, watch out for others' others' sin. And he gives a two-step kind of process. Step two, forgiveness gets the greater treatment. But step one is worth pointing out. He says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. There are two temptations when it comes to rebuking others for their sin. Temptation number one is to be harsh. Temptation number two is to be passive. Neither of those come from love. When we're harsh, our rebuke is more about condemnation and guilt and shame than it is about love. But when we're passive, our passivity is more about not wanting confrontation than it is about love. If we're going to walk in love in relationship with our brothers and sisters in Christ, when their sin bumps into our life, Jesus says what's required is gentle but honest and truthful rebuke and gracious forgiveness. And the point he's really driving home 
is about forgiveness. There are two things you can control when someone sins against you, your loving rebuke and your gracious forgiveness. Your response of forgiveness comes as they confess and repent. And Jesus says, if they sin against you seven times, you must forgive them seven times. Now that's not to set the upper limit. That's not on time number eight, it's over. If that were the case, none of us would have spouses or siblings. (laughs) There are other places where Jesus says that you forgive 70 times seven times, right? The number seven is about wholeness and perfection, that if someone sins against you and they come back to you and they genuinely repent, we are to forgive. Repentance and forgiveness. You can't control the other person's sin. You can control your response. And as a forgiven people, we are to be a forgiving people. We're forgiven by God's grace as we repent and turn to him, and we are forgiving by God's grace, as others repent and turn to him. The way others live impacts us. Forgiveness is required. Verses five and six. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, the Lord said, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it will obey you. Principle number three, living faithfully is an immense task. Faith is required. In response to all of this, the disciples cry out, give us more faith. And it seems like it comes out of nowhere, but if you actually take the whole chunk here, it makes perfect sense. Seeing the Father's lavish love and compassion, the three parables in Luke 15, hearing about the necessity to steward all of, life, all of God's blessings well, that's the parable of the dishonest manager, observing the rebuke that the Pharisees get for being lovers of money and justifiers of themselves, then getting the vivid illustration of life's fragility and eternity's certainty, being warned about the way that they live, being encouraged in regard to others, sin toward them. Crying out for greater faith actually makes sense. Like you would see all of that and say, help, I can't do this. Give me greater faith. This is hard. I need more faith in order to live this way. And Jesus's response is that you don't need a lot of faith. You need a little faith in a big and powerful God. That's what you need. Mustard seed sized faith. Leon Morris says it this way. It's not so much great faith that is required as faith in a great God. The point of Jesus's illustration is that with a little tiny amount of mustard seed faith, you can see God do big and powerful things in your life. Not because of the greatness of your faith, but because of the greatness of who God is. It's not that you could literally uproot a mulberry tree, which had this big root system, and have it go plant itself underwater in the sea. It's that little faith in a great God does big things because God is powerful. And in our context... The kind of things that a great God does is stuff like helping us forsake the allure of money and stuff. Helping us care for the vulnerable instead of being concerned only for our comfort and control. Helping us walk in holiness. Helping us give gentle rebukes. Helping us give gracious forgiveness. You don't have to have great faith. You have to have little faith in a great God. Yes, all of this seems hard, Jesus says, but a little faith is all that's necessary. You don't need more faith. The tiny amount of faith that you have is enough, not because you are great or because your faith is powerful, but because the one in whom your faith rests, he is great, he is powerful, and that greatness and that power includes the ability to shape, change, and transform the hearts of his people. 
so that they live in light of the kingdom. Then there are verses 7 through 10. A parable. Which of you, having a servant, tending sheep or plowing, will say to him when he comes in from the field, come at once and sit down to eat? Instead, will he not tell him, prepare something for me to eat, get ready and serve me while I eat and drink. Later, you can eat and drink. Does he thank that servant because he did what was commanded? In the same way, when you have done all that you were commanded, you should say, we are worthless servants. We have only done our duty. Principle number four, Jesus is the king and we are his servants. Humility is required. Sixth parable in a short window here, and this one is quick and to the point. Jesus isn't making a statement about the rightness or the wrongness of slavery or servanthood. He isn't commending the practice. He's alluding to a societal reality that his listeners will understand. The servant simply serves. That's the point. The servant knows what his duty is, and he does it. And the point for Jesus' disciples is that we are to know that we are servants of the king that we are servants of his kingdom, his rule, and his reign, and we should humbly dispatch our duty. This parable also corrects against the idea that our service to God puts God in our debt. Right? Does he thank that servant because he did what was commanded? The rhetorical answer to that is no. In the same way, when you have done all that you were commanded, you should say, we are worthless servants. We've only done our duty. I've used this illustration before. But by faithfully serving We don't make God indebted to us. When I was in high school or I was in college and I would have a big test or a big paper coming up and I would do a quiet time on the morning of that thing, I would literally pray to God, God, I read the Bible. You owe me an A. As if I had just put God in debt to me. There are other times in life, and you hear about this as sort of like foxhole kinds of of commitments to the Lord. God, if you will rescue me from this situation, I will do fill in the blank. As if now we've put God in our debt, but on credit sort of basis. God, first you do this thing, then I'll do this. And because I'll do that, you owe me getting me out of this situation. And it sounds ridiculous to say up here at the front, but our heart goes there in a hurry when things get dark or difficult or overwhelming in life. God, you owe me because of A, B, C, and D. David Garland, a commentator on the Gospel of Luke, says this, servants of Christ cannot expect to tend to their own needs first. Instead, their lot is to do everything the master requires. Meritorious service does not put the master in one's debt. The parable challenges a view of religion that believes one can earn merit before God or that God's purpose is to serve us. It corrects a mindset that is obsessed with self. Humility is the starting point for a life of following Jesus. If we're going to be devoted followers of Jesus Christ, the first thing and the continual thing that must happen in our hearts is the unseating from are the unseating of ourselves from the place of primary importance within our lives so that we can put Christ into that place. So long as you are king in your heart, Jesus is not. So long as anything else is king in your heart, Jesus is not. 
So long as you live in light of your rule and your reign, you will not enter into the kingdom of Jesus's rule and Jesus's reign. Just in Luke chapter 16, Jesus said, you cannot serve God and money. You get to the last little parable here in this whole run, verses seven to 10, and you could now make this statement. You cannot serve both you and God. One master, you can only serve one. Run back up to the top of this. If you are king in your heart and you live according to your rule and your reign, offenses are certainly going to come and you will think they're a good idea because they serve you in some way. You'll set the trap for others and not really care. If you live according to your rule and your reign in your heart, then there will be moments where resentment and bitterness and the desire for revenge pop up. And there will be no forgiveness. If you live according to your rule and your reign, then when the big things of life happens and it feels like you're getting overwhelmed or drowned or swamped by your circumstances, your flesh will convince you that you just need to try a little harder, do a little better, work a little bit harder or smarter, and you can overcome your circumstances. Humility is the starting point for all of this. Humility is the foundation for following Jesus faithfully. If you've got your Bible on a digital device, make two swipes and go back to Luke 15. If you've got your Bible on a hard copy, it's maybe like one or two flips of the page. Just walk with me through this section really briefly, because the whole section provides sort of a microcosm for a principle that's present throughout the reality or the totality of Scripture. Luke 15, three parables about the Father's love and kindness toward his people. Parable of the lost sheep, parable of the lost coin, parable of the lost son or the prodigal son that culminates in the Father's lavish love as he runs toward those who flaunt his goodness and kindness. That could be in younger brother types of sin or it could be in older brother types of sin. In the end of that parable, the father moves toward both of his children despite their sin. Then there's the start of 16, that those who live in God's kingdom are to steward God's blessings well toward his purposes and his will according to his rule and his reign. Then there's a comment straight to the Pharisees starting in verse 14. You are lovers of money who want to justify yourselves. Then there's a parable about the rich man and Lazarus that puts in front of us the stark reality of life's fragility and eternity's certainty, a statement about holiness, a statement about forgiveness, a statement about faith, and a final parable that makes a statement about humility. There is no way you can read any section of scripture and not be overwhelmed by the reality and the necessity of humility for living in relationship with God. You can't get away from that in the Old Testament where the the phrase fear of the Lord is used over 140 times. You can't get away from that reality in the New Testament. Ephesians 2.4, be completely humble and gentle. Philippians 2.3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. James 4.10, 
Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. James 3.13, who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. Colossians 3.12, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. 1 Peter 5.6, humble yourselves under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Galatians 5.13, serve one another humbly in love. James, quoting from Proverbs 3.34, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Step back and just take the big picture view of Jesus' life. He steps out of the glory of heaven. That's a humbling act. Puts on flesh. He's never been constrained by that. That's a humbling act. Is born as a baby in a manger. Serves his entire public ministry without a home, no place to lay his head. Itinerant preacher, Philippians says, humbles himself to death, even death on a cross. There's the constant refrain throughout Jesus's preaching that those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted, that the first will be last and the last will be first. You can't get away from it. And the whole movement of Luke 15, 16, and the start of 17 mirrors a reality that plays out throughout scripture, that there's something about being saved that humbles people to obedience. That's why these things Start. If Luke's intent is strictly theological, it makes sense that he starts with the three parables about the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son. Abraham believes God, we're told. Then he obeys. The Israelites are saved from Egypt and then given the Ten Commandments. The disciples are called to follow Jesus, then taught about what it looks like to live in the kingdom. There's something about being saved by God that humbles us so that we walk in obedience. And this message of humility is so much more than just a plea to do better. Like if that is all God gave you, it's a picture of humility and said, you just need to hopefully get yourself humbled enough that when you stand before me in judgment, I'll accept you. That would be a hopeless, overwhelming, heavy burden that none of us could bear. But the reality is that humility is what God is creating in his people. It is a work of God within the life of a believer to move us toward humility. There's a whole arc of this. Look, the first move God makes in a person is toward humility. Without that first move, we have no idea that we need a savior. We would reject the father's run toward us. It's the kindness of God that humbles us to obedience. It's the Holy Spirit that illuminates for us the reality of our brokenness and the lavish grace and mercy of God's goodness. We first have to understand that we're either the older brother or the younger brother and that God is graciously moving toward us and that humbles us because you do not deserve it. The first thing that the Holy Spirit does in a person, in one of God's people, is just knock you flat on your faith, face with how much you don't deserve the loving grace and mercy of the Father. It's not done there. Because God's ongoing work in a person is toward humility. Without it, we live as though we're the owner of all that we have. And that would lock us in slavery to that idol. 
without God moving toward humility in our lives continually, we would love our stuff, seek to justify ourselves, overlook the vulnerable, pursue our own comfort and control, not live in holiness, but according to what suits us, hold grudges and not extend forgiveness, think that faith in ourselves is what makes things happen, rather than faith in God who's powerful and sovereign. We would serve the Lord or others in order to achieve our own means. Thank God that his work in a follower of Jesus's life is always toward humility. The Holy Spirit's continual work in the life of a follower of Jesus is to knock you flat on your face in front of the fullness of who God is. That as you spend a lifetime walking with Jesus, opening up the scriptures, reading about who God is, I mean, pick your characteristic of God. You think on any one of them for more than about 20 seconds and humility is the result. His grace, his mercy, his holiness, his righteousness, the fact that he knows all things, the fact that he controls all things, the fact that he is always with you and present with you everywhere. Just any one of those breeds humility in the life of a follower of Jesus. The gospel humbles us to salvation once and then toward holiness continually, but it's not over there because God's final move in a person will be toward humility. We're told that one day when we all go and stand before the judgment seat of the Lord, every knee in heaven, on earth, and under the earth is going to bow. The last thing that's going to happen before you are sent to your eternal resting place is that you are going to be knocked flat on your face by the full display of the glory of God. And if you've received God's grace for the forgiveness of your sin through faith in Jesus Christ, we're told that on the other side of that moment of judgment, there's this great wedding feast waiting for us. The Bible says that there's this wedding feast of the lamb where Jesus the lamb is like this groom and the church is going to be adorned in all of its splendor, glorified, no more sin, no more brokenness, made whole and righteous. And we're gonna be brought together for this big wedding feast and you're gonna get into that place looking all fine in all of your glorified body with no more of your sin weighing you down and you're gonna see the fullness of the sun. And you're gonna understand that that wedding feast is not about you. Like you're gonna spend eternity in humble awareness of just how great and awesome and magnificent the sun is. You're gonna see the king in all of his splendor. And you are not going to walk into that feast and say to yourself or to anyone else, it's good to see me, isn't it? You're gonna walk into that and you are gonna say, it is good to see the king, isn't it? Humility is the foundation for following Jesus faithfully. And the good news of the gospel is that God does the work of creating humility, humbleness within his people. As one pride-drunk sinner to another, I wanna offer you a couple of rhythms. By way of application, how can we set some rhythms up in our life so that we partner with the Holy Spirit as God goes about creating humility within us. Two of these, they go together. The first one is this. As you read scripture, let scripture 
read you. I hope that there is a rhythm in your life of engaging with God via his word. But despite our best intentions, our flesh makes it so that we can come to God's word in a prideful manner. You might say to yourself, I'm coming to God's word and my primary objective is just to know and to understand and to puff myself up with theological knowledge and to wrestle to the ground the mystery of all that who God is. Or we go to scripture and we say, what I'm really looking for is one little nugget for how to make my life better, increase my happiness, help me have better comfort in this life. And we make the reading of scripture all about ourselves. When you go into the scriptures, Leave as much room for the scriptures to read you as you make space for you to read scripture. And what I mean by that is let the truth of God's word empowered by the movement of the Holy Spirit inside of you tell you the truth about who you are. Illuminate for you the reality of your heart and the truth about what's most true in your life. And I can promise you that in the middle of that process, you are not going to read the scripture and say to yourself, it's great to see me. You're going to read the scripture and think it is unflattering and ugly and broken to have to look at myself like this. And if you just stopped there, it would be easy to give yourself over to either self-loathing, self-hatred, despair over your brokenness. But that's why we need rhythm number two. And rhythm number two is to preach the gospel to yourself. When you read scripture and you let scripture read you, when you let the Holy Spirit reveal to you the truth about your own heart and you see what that is, in that moment, remind yourself it is good to see the king and preach the gospel right into the middle of your brokenness. One of the hardest realities of walking as a follower of Jesus is figuring out how to functionally allow the gospel to intersect with whatever is going on in your life. And the way that we do that is by consciously and intentionally preaching the gospel to ourselves. And in doing so, you don't give yourself over to self-hatred because every time you preach the gospel to yourself, you give yourself over to humility. I wanna be as practical about this as I possibly can be. And I wanna do this in the context of communion. So if you've got your cup, go ahead and open up the little wafer, open up the juice. I wanna give you some examples of what I mean when I say preach the gospel to yourself. And I'm gonna start in our very passage that we're working with and then work kind of into some other examples, but know that this is not an exhaustive list, but I hope it helps paint a picture for us. Scripture tells us that when we come to the table to take communion, that we are to do so with an honest examination of our hearts and in confession and repentance. So we're sitting here with our elements before us and we are to consider whether or not there is any sin in our life. Spoiler alert, there is. But we don't want to give ourselves over to despair or to self-loathing. So when the Holy Spirit, 
via scripture or you know, this sermon or whatever the case is revealing to us the truth of who we are, we preach the gospel to ourselves. What is the truth about the gospel in light of our sin? The truth about the gospel is that my sin, our sin, the reality of sin has heavy consequences. Jesus' body was broken, his blood was poured out because of the reality of sin, but there's good news in that. He went willingly. The father is running toward us in our younger brother sin and in our older brother sin. And the good news doesn't even stop there because the gospel also tells us that Jesus died in that place, body broken, blood poured out, was laid in a tomb. Then he resurrected and triumphed over our sin so that we don't have to live in slavery to it any longer. And we're told that at the end of all things, there will be no more sin. And so rather than being given over to despair or self-loathing in response to our sin, we have humility because the father would provide all of that in response to our sin. We're also told when we come to take communion and we come to worship, that if there's any disagreement, resentment, bitterness with a brother or sister in Christ, that we are to go and make that right before we take our communion. What happens when I'm sitting here in worship or I'm reading the scripture and scriptures are reading me and the Holy Spirit is reading me and what I see is resentment and bitterness? I just give myself over to the fact that I'm locked in resentment and bitterness? No, I preach the gospel to myself. You're forgiven. Body broken, blood poured out, The grace of God has forgiven you of your sin and the mountain of that debt that's been forgiven of you before the Lord will always far outweigh any demand that forgiveness to someone else could extend upon your life. And I know that some of you might be sitting here and say, Tim, you don't know my past or you don't know this conflict or you don't know what this person did to me. Here's what I do know. I do know that your sin against a holy and a righteous and eternal God is infinite. And that we can forgive because we've been forgiven. We can extend grace because grace has been given to us. You might be in the middle of a season of life where you're just totally overwhelmed by your circumstances. Your grief feels like it's too heavy to bear. The circumstances that surround you feel like they're swamping you and overpowering you and overcoming you. And you feel like one of the disciples, give us more faith. And then you preach the gospel to yourself. It's not big faith that saves me. It's small faith in a big God. It's small faith in a Savior, body broken, blood poured out. That's it. And with your tiny mustard seed faith, you can just cling to that. And know that the same God who triumphed out of the grave is going to triumph over your circumstances, whether it's in this life or you receive that in the life to come. That's the good news of the gospel in the middle of your overwhelming, despair-ridden circumstances. You might be battling feelings of worthlessness, loneliness, battling with having to reconcile in your own heart the perception that people have of you or your own value in life. And when... Scripture reveals that when the Holy Spirit reads that for you, you hold it up and you preach the gospel to yourself. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus, body broken, blood poured out, placed in the tomb, triumphed over the grave, ascended into heaven, sent his Holy Spirit and Emmanuel, God with us, you are never alone. It might feel like everyone has turned their back on you 
and you're looking at your heart and you feel the grief and the sadness and the despair of that and you preach the gospel to yourself and if everybody walked out on you, he never will. Or you feel overwhelmed by the perceptions that people around you have and you're hearing from other sources the gossip or the slander that's taking place outside of you. And you feel like the weight of other people's thoughts is just burdening you so heavily. You look at Jesus, body broken, blood poured out, Father running toward you with grace and mercy, and you remind yourself that there's only one person whose thoughts ultimately matter. It doesn't make it any easier necessarily to deal with being misrepresented or slandered or gossiped against or whatever the case might be, but it does remind you that the good news of the gospel is that at the end of this blip of a lifetime, you're gonna stand before the judge and Jesus is going to rise on your behalf and say, mine. You preach the gospel to yourself. I don't know all the circumstances that you walked in here with this morning that you're watching with or you're listening with online. But I know this. As the Holy Spirit reveals your heart to you, as scripture reads you and you hold that up and you see all of its brokenness or all of its despair or all of its dirtiness or all of its longings that have gone unfulfilled, you preach the gospel to yourself and you see the goodness of God and it humbles us. And when we preach the gospel to yourselves, we can say every single time, it is good to see the King. And so we're gonna take communion. This is gonna look a little bit different than normal. And I will admit right off the top that for some people, this is going to be incredibly awkward, but it's just going to be silent in here. So you can preach the gospel to yourself. Whatever that needs to look like right now. Allow the Holy Spirit to continue reading your heart. Take a good, honest, hard look at whatever it is that he displays and then remind yourself of the good news of the gospel. Body broken, blood poured out and rejoice in seeing the king. Take a few minutes to do that. The worship team's gonna come up. They're gonna give some space and then they'll move us into song. And if you're not ready yet, it's fine. You don't, you don't have to sing. Let your heart be read. Preach the gospel to yourself. Amen. Amen.